When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. In this episode, we begin a two-part series on the life and times of Andrew Johnson. In this part one, we take a look at his early life up to the time he was nominated to become Vice President of the United States. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to go back to our series on presidents with a discussion of Andrew Johnson, the 17th president. What I knew about him before researching for this podcast is basically that he was impeached and avoided conviction in the Senate by a single vote. He's usually ranked near the bottom of U.S. presidents, although Arthur Schlesinger put him in the middle of the pack in 1948. The biography on him in the American President series is singularly harsh about him. Um, It was written by the Harvard professor who won the Pulitzer Prize for her book on the Sally Hemings-Thomas Jefferson relationship. She dedicates the book to Vernon Jordan Jr. and the memory of Mary Bell Jordan for standing against everything Andrew Johnson stood for. Researching his life, though, he becomes a rather interesting figure, and I'm not completely sure what he stood for. Tom, you want to tell us a little bit about his early life? Sure, Richard. Uh, If there's one theme to Andrew Johnson's early life, I think it's abject poverty. Um, He uh, was born in North Carolina and uh, lived in very, uh, very grave poverty. His father died. His mother remarried. Uh, He uh, did not get along with his stepfather at all. He uh, ran away from home. His stepfather put out a bounty on him. He and his brother ran away from home. His stepfather put out a bounty on him. And uh, he ended up returning to his stepfather uh, to essentially be apprenticed May that, may that may be a generous term uh, for the work situation he found himself in. It may have been less than an apprenticeship as well. It may have been more servitude. Nevertheless, he did return voluntarily, um, and his stepfather was a seamstress, uh, 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 suit maker, Seems, not a seamstress, um, but uh, he learned a very valuable skill that he actually used uh, really for the rest of his life because of his ability um, to make and sew clothes. Uh, that made him a somewhat, not dandy, but uh, a good dresser. And I think he always looked very sharp, uh, particularly in suits that he made for himself. Uh, but it was a skill he learned, a trade he learned. He was able to turn that into economic benefit. He uh, eventually immigrated or migrated, I should say, to Tennessee across the border where he was able to establish himself as a suit maker. Uh, As in that job, he uh, was able to um, 
save uh, some monies, enough that he could buy up land uh, in the uh, surrounding area where he had migrated to. He also brought his mother and stepfather over to live with him and was a, I think, a big contributor to a local economy. He became a landowner, uh, and then he became a slave owner in uh, 1843, buying his first two slaves. Uh, so his background lent itself to 1800 or 19th century uh, politics. Of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln is, is the most famous uh, for having been raised in a log cabin. Uh, I, I'm almost tend to think now that after reading up on Johnson, uh, Lincoln actually was in pretty luxurious circumstances compared to Andrew Johnson. Uh, he was also illiterate. And uh, that's another, I think this is the first president who we had who was illiterate into adulthood. And uh, his wife taught him how to read. And I can't emphasize enough how significant I thought that was going into adulthood, not being able to read, but learning how to read, learning how uh, to do mathematics enough to keep books uh, were skills that his wife taught him. And I didn't find any references in the materials we used to research for this podcast, but I wonder if his lack of ability to read actually enhanced his ability to help to speak and speak publicly because he became a, a very good orator. And later we'll talk about his stump speeches when he was a politician. So uh, really raising himself up uh, by his bootstraps as well as I think you could have in the mid 19th century, uh, he did uh, some extraordinary things, in my opinion, raising himself, raising those around him up uh, as well, and was very well thought of in uh, his local community. Uh, and then he turns to politics. So what did you see in his uh, early political career that we could talk about, Richard? Well, I mean, his political career is, is really remarkable. Um, he, he was living in Greenville, Tennessee at, at that time, and he and this the town plasterer, a man named Braxton McDaniel, uh, rented a hall and held a public debate on the issue of extending Tennessee criminal law into Cherokee land. And then they started a debating society. And as you point out, for a man who was illiterate into his adulthood, to just step onto a stage and make public speeches on an issue such as that is is really striking. Um, as you said, he was a, a very well-respected member of, of Greenville Society, and so he ran for alderman, uh, the first rung on the political ladder. Um, coincidentally, the, during uh, when he was elected, uh, his fellow aldermen were Mordecai Lincoln, who was Abraham Lincoln's father's first cousin and the plasterer with whom he held his debates. In 1834, he was elected mayor of Greenville, and then he moved up to the state legislature in 1835. Um, that's when he, um, he moved to Nashville, where he bought a 14-year-old uh, slave girl. And... Um, it's a very interesting aside on his personal life there, which is not really well covered in most of what we've uh, we read. But his wife had tuberculosis and was quasi-invalid, and so she didn't move to Nashville with him. Um, 
He was notably solicitous of this uh, slave, and he later bought her half-brother. And she's listed on census records as black, but she had three children who are listed as mulattoes. And, um, but there was never any scandal around it at the time. But I think the clear implication is that they, they may have been his children. And in, in his anti-slavery speeches, he dwells almost obsessively on racial miscegenation as the evil part of slavery. His political philosophy was kind of um, protean, I guess. He, he really considered himself a Jacksonian. He had a great admiration for Andrew Jackson. Um, he was technically a Whig for a while, but he, he opposed spending money on public works, especially on the expansion of railroads. Uh, he eventually lost the election in 1837. He wouldn't lose another one for 30 years. And he switched to the Democratic Party. And that's when he began his federal career. And uh, so I guess you can tell us a little bit about that time. So this was perhaps the most interesting thing for me, Richard, was his federal uh, political career. I think we haven't studied too many people in this podcast series, but lots of frontiersmen did step into the political realm at the local level and, and serve honorably and well, but he moved up from the state house to the U.S. house, and he served four terms in the U.S. house, and I found his, uh, some of his key um, ideas, or at least political philosophies, really interesting. He was, uh, as you might suspect, uh, very uh, solicitous of the rights of the poor and advocated for less economically advantaged Americans, or at least white Americans, uh, at that point in time. He was for limited government, not unusual for a, a Southerner at that time, uh, states' rights focused, uh, even to the point where being anti-tariff. And when I say anti-tariff, that was uh, the U.S. government had no federal income tax at this time, so the income was largely derived through uh, fees and tariffs, particularly on shipping both uh, internal to the United States and, uh, um, and then in, in interior rivers and other uh, waterways. And he really was anti-tariff. Uh, it's not clear if he was anti-tariff because of the increased cost, whether it was the federal government running the tariffs, and he believed that the state government should run those. Nevertheless, he was clearly anti-tariff. But there were three other issues that I found literally extraordinary uh, for Johnson to publicly advocate. And you have to recall, this is in uh, the late 1840s. Number one, he advocated the uh, abolishment of the Electoral College and direct election of presidents. Seems like to me, I've heard that recently. Um, and I hate to say Andrew Johnson's a precursor to 2022 in any way, but uh that has apparently been a debate in American politics uh, since time in memoriam. And I guess one of the things that uh, we have seen in this podcast series on, focusing on presidents has been uh, there's almost nothing new in American politics. Something, whatever we're going through now, in large part, we've gone through before. And, and this is one of those examples. Uh, the second thing was he was for direct election of senators. This presaged uh, 70 years later when an amendment to the Constitution allowed direct election of senators. So really interesting uh, that he was 
at the forefront of this movement too. And then finally, perhaps the most fascinating, he wanted a 12-year limit on uh, federally appointed judges. Once again, something that we uh, <laughs> we have heard about uh, recently. So he was, uh, I guess you would call him a small government populist, uh, if that's that term resonates in any way. But um, he uh, really uh, worked uh, moderately well when he was in uh, the House of Representatives. He did not seem to be ill thought of although he, he didn't stand out uh, in any way. But his um, uh, political positions, I thought, were uh, really interesting. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Yeah, and uh, one of the ones that, uh, that comes up again and again was his support for the Homestead Act. And during his period in the House, he helped shepherd the act through the House, uh, and it was then it died in the Senate, um, which he then he later resurrected it, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but that that was very interesting in that it was a way to help, uh, as you point out, poor whites at the time. But then his opposition to land reform uh, and Reconstruction was. Uh, seems to go against that. So he, he's a very conflicted figure in a lot of ways, and uh, I, I find it very difficult to get a handle on him. And I think one of the reasons for that is we have very few uh, written uh, documents from him. Uh, he struggled with writing his entire life, and he apparently was not terribly self-reflective. He was also not terribly religious, which was very odd for the time. You know, I, I just think it's very hard to get a, a handle on uh, any consistent political philosophy with him. He was gerrymandered out of the House in 1853, and uh, so he decided he'd double back and become governor of Tennessee. And here, Richard, um, what I found the most interesting was uh, Tennessee, like the state of Texas today, has a weak governor. And uh, but he used the position as a bully pulpit, and uh, long before uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, made that phrase a little bit more famous. But he spoke and he spoke and he spoke about issues that were important to him. And I won't say he cowed the legislature uh, into supporting his positions, but he at least at least reached a stage where he was able to uh, communicate what he wanted and get. Uh, some of the things that were important to him done. He largely left the legislature to do the day-to-day running of the state, uh, but he spoke, and he spoke very effectively at a time when the Whigs, the opposition party to his party, the Democrats, controlled uh, the state legislature. Um, anything from the governorship that uh, you saw interesting? Well, as as we briefly discussed uh, before uh, recording this, the uh, one thing that was fascinating was the amount of travel and public speaking he did throughout his career, and uh, he he literally crisscrossed the state making speeches to drum up support for his positions. And it turns out that the first book he ever owned was a book called The American Speaker, and he kept it with him his entire life and studied it, and he studied the the art of. Uh, public speaking, and he was apparently extremely effective at it, and uh, 
although he was often very emotional about it. Um, but anyway, yes, the, um, the the weak executive was was interesting. He was not beloved by his fellow Democrats, um, but he then tried to uh, become Democratic presidential candidate in eighteen fifty six. But at the convention, he lost out to Buchanan, which who knows if they'd been reversed, whether uh, whether it would have worked out better for them both because they're they both appear regularly on the list of our worst presidents. But then he um, he also campaigned for on behalf of other Democrats to drum up support, and so that's when uh, the Democrats managed to take control of the Tennessee legislature for the first time in a while. Then he got himself appointed senator, and uh, so his career there was was interesting as well. And here, Richard, I'd like to bring up a point you started with uh, when he was in the House of Representatives, which was the Homestead Act. And I can't emphasize enough, number one, my surprise at his championing this issue, but how critical this was to the growth and success of the United States and the westward movement, uh, literally from the 1860s uh, through the uh, first half of the 20th century. The Homestead Act was still being used in Alaska in the 1960s. The Homestead Act gave uh, citizens... Uh, who would farm 160 acres, the right to uh, gain title to that land if they did farm it. Now, the land was sitting there owned by no one because the American Indians uh, were on that land. But um, leaving, uh, uh, if settlers came and farmland, and this was the way that literally millions of Americans were able to finance a trip west and then uh, become landowners in the West and uh, become um, middle-class Americans at that point in time. And he uh, championed this issue. Uh, He started in the House uh, back in the uh, 1840s, and he continued to champion that issue in the second half of the 1850s. The Southern states did not want the Homestead Act passed because they recognized that uh, it would be small yeoman farmers, probably those who either couldn't or wouldn't be able to afford a slave uh, who would take that land and uh, farm it and then gain title to it. So they were dead set against the Homestead Act. And unfortunately, Johnson was not able to ever push this through while he was in Congress. He uh, had left Congress in the 1860s by the time it passed Congress, and it only passed because the southern states weren't there, but the Homestead Act was, a, I think, a key component of uh, the growth of the United States in the second, particularly in the second half of the 19th century. And as I've said now, I think three times, I was very surprised to see Andrew Johnson was one of the key components of uh, that passage because of his work in the House and then his continued work in the Senate. And then, of course, it was passed after um, he had left the Senate. So, if he if he had gone back to Tennessee and never appeared reappeared on the national stage, I think uh, people might think of him in a very different way because of his work on the Homestead Act. Now, I, th- I think that's an excellent point, but uh, unfortunately for him, he remained <laughs> <laughs> on the national stage. And the um, the election of eighteen sixty was was of course. Uh, a very seminal one in American history. Um, the Democratic Convention split in two over the uh, the issue of secession and slavery, and um, 
Johnson at one point um, said, if the Ten Commandments were to come up for consideration, somebody would find a Negro in them somewhere and the slavery question would be raised, um, indicating to me that he uh, was not monomaniacal on the subject. Um, but he, he was, throughout his career, he was a virulent racist, but he was a pro-unionist. And he really attributed that to Andrew Jackson. And um, he made speeches all across Tennessee supporting the union and opposing secession during this campaign. He was nearly lynched several times. He was uh, burned in effigy. Um, his ultimately, um, after secession, all his properties were confiscated and his wife and children were driven from their home. He's a man of, of some principles. Um, it's just hard to figure out what they are. And I'd like to really pick up on that last point because I have studied extensively the Texas succession. And uh, I learned a new phrase when I moved to Kerrville because that was a big issue in this part of Texas because largely ger settled by Germans who were more pro Unionists, they uh, had their necks stretched, and there were a fair amount of lynchings and hangings of pro-union uh, 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 citizens uh, around this time. So his his he really put it on the line, and um, was threatened, and his family was was treated very badly. So uh, he had some personal courage. Uh, to make these speeches and to advocate for uh, not leaving uh, the union. So there was, like I said, more more there than we had previously known, at least that we had previously studied. He did uh, refuse to give up his Senate seat, um, which we will get into in further detail in our on the second half of our podcast. But, um, yeah, he really did. He um he put a great deal on the line to support the country, and um, it's, again, he's a, he's a fairly conflicted uh, individual in a lot of ways. But I think if you look at his career up to this point, he's he's an admirable man in many ways. The um, given his impoverished childhood, and then to um, to learn to read and eventually write in his twenties, probably. Um, and then to become, to climb the political ladder from alderman to mayor to state representative to uh, House, U.S. House to the U.S. Senate, governor, uh, it's just an incredible uh, resume. Uh, it is, and uh, part of this podcast series is dedicated to leadership lessons and um I had struggled in my research to, to really think through uh, what leadership lessons we could point to. But in uh, now that we've had this exchange, I think we've identified some, some key elements that still resonate today. Um, and you touched on it uh, near, nearly at the end, Richard, which was he was illiterate into, into his 20s, uh, yet uh, he learned how to write. And today, I think we would call that uh, intensely curious and uh, continuing to learn, and that uh, even if you have a law degree like we do, it doesn't mean you stop learning if you choose to be intensely curious and endlessly curious, and you can improve your station uh, by being curious and learning about new and different things. 
uh, he learned to trade. And uh, I'm always persuaded by Malcolm Gladwell, who says it takes 10,000 hours to master a subject, whether that's uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon or others. And I think he spent the time as an apprentice um, in the suit making industry um, that allowed him to become a true tailor and a, and a true master tailor. Uh, and that led to him being able to, to clothe himself and then to look as if he had risen above his roots because he was always so nicely dressed. And even in today's world, I think people still notice when you're nicely dressed. Uh, it may not be a, a suit and tie anymore, but I, I still think being dressed nicely means something, particularly in more formal settings. Uh, and I guess the, the last thing is, uh, unlike... I think what I think we're going to explore in the next exercise, he was able to work with those across the aisle from him. Uh, in Tennessee, when he was governor, he worked with the Whig legislature. Uh, Whigs were a big part of the Tennessee governorship or the Tennessee state legislature, I should have said, when he was in the legislature. So he was he was used to working with those across the political aisle. Once again, we don't see a lot of that that we'll talk about in our next episode, which is probably what he's more well-remembered for. But there is there is some significant things to, to learn from his life um, in a positive manner. And like most Americans, I certainly wasn't aware of these uh, factors uh, in his uh, political life. But there's, there's some things I think they're to really be commended. Yeah, he's described as a voracious reader in one of the biographies I looked at. Um, and I think that goes to your point about curiosity. Um, he, he read everything. The other thing that interested me, you talk about his reaching across the aisle. Um, he also frequently alienated members of his own party. Um, but no one seems, to, until we get to the second half of the podcast, uh, he seems to have made very few permanent enemies. Um, the uh, people would always come back to work with him, and whether that's a testimony to his his eloquence and his persuasiveness as a speaker in private as well as public, or uh, skilled deal making, or what. But I, I thought one of the interesting things was he kept hearing it referred to that he'd made enemies, but then somehow they all went away by the time he climbed another rung of the ladder. A fair amount to commend, uh, I think. We began to see some of the traits that um, led to uh, his downfall. One that I, I think I need to mention now was he, he had a fondness for the cider, and he never shied away from a cider. Uh, at this point, it didn't appear the cider had taken over for him. Uh, and then the other thing is whatever uh, demons or fears or what he felt from being uh, coming from the absolute lowest economic class of white Americans at that time, he seems to have overcome and he seemed to be able to work with a wide variety of, of others. I think we see that, that change going forward. So uh, frankly, I can't wait to do part two of this, Richard. Let me uh, end with uh, a couple of the negative observations that, that go to leadership, which, um, one of his biographers feels that his deep personal insecurity because of his upbringing uh, led him to think of stubbornness as a synonym for inner strength. 
Um, we, we see that a lot in the second half here. Um, and the other thing is he's, he may well have been afraid to be wrong. Um, and he offered his stubbornness as evidence he was a man of principle, but in fact, he was simply afraid to be wrong sometimes. And um, I think we will see how that sets him up for disaster later in life. So um, there's always a tension between the two. But uh, in his case, um, and, and as I said before, we have very few documents from himself. So a lot of what we, what we read is, is people's interpretations of him. Um, based on their own opinions and background. So, Well, I hope you will enjoy this. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you will join us for part two, where we discuss the, uh, the rest of his career um, as vice president and then president. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox saying goodbye from 12 o'clock high. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of... 12 o'clock high, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you'll join us again next time when we take up the rest of Andrew Johnson's life from his ascension to the vice presidency, his time as military governor of Tennessee, and then moving to the presidency itself, and of course, his impeachment. I'd like to tell you about another exciting new podcast series, which premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network, Never the Same. How business has been changed forever by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where together with CEO of Exeger, Brandon Daniels, and I take a deep dive into five reasons we believe business has changed forever. All of these podcasts are available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.